Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me, an amazing Bridget Harris, the CEO and co-founder of You Can Book Me, an online scheduling tool that helps businesses manage their customers and calendars. Uh, the boots dropped to 5 million ARR. Mm -hmm. uh, they're on the list of top 100 software companies on G2. Mm -hmm. And I guess I can say advocate for balanced and transparent remote communication, uh, which is just such a game changer right now. And uh, I'm super excited to talk about it and all the other things regarding the business. So welcome, Bridget. Thanks very much, Anna. Thank you so much for having me on the on the show. It's awesome to have you here. So first of all, uh, and of course, like I did my research, I, I learned a little bit about what you were doing prior to to this and it's super impressive i mean <laughs> you were working for the government before and somehow then after um working for the house of lords no less uh you somehow transitioned into SaaS. so <laughs> what was the tipping point like what brought you to uh to transition into business um well the answer to that is my age uh, because I'm really old. So as a result, I've, I'm old enough to have had previous careers even before the internet was a thing. Um, and so uh, myself and my co-founder um, and uh, uh, co-partner in life, Keith, uh, is a software developer or engineer or computer programmer, as we used to call them. And I had a career in politics, as you said. I worked for um, opposition political parties and gov local government and, and latterly had a job when the Lib Dems were in coalition um, in the UK government. And I was a special advisor to the deputy prime minister. And I did focus on constitutional reform, House of Lords reform and processes internal to parliament, like like um, uh, group dynamics in, in political parties. So I was doing all of that very happily. And Keith was writing uh, software very happily. Uh, but around 2003, so obviously this is about 20 years ago, when the cloud, web development, web applications, being able to share your software online in a way that was accessible through a browser became the thing. It was almost a little bit like, not as in rapid progress, but if you imagine how transformational uh, chat GPT now feels like, how AI feels like now, um, and that that sort of we've we've all become awakened to that technology in a matter of months. Well, and obviously for some people a lot longer. Um, but it's hitting the mainstream now pretty quickly. Well, twenty years ago, that's what the internet felt like. You know, you sort of start to, you start very slow, very clunky, and nobody really knows what it's about. And then just ever just so suddenly, you realise you can do everything over the web. You can sell. You can create. You can build. You can provide a service and indeed you can run a business. And I think that the original intention for, for us was to do a very honorable, you know, um, single person product, single person made product that would just go out there and, um, you know, live its little premium, premium life. Um, and me and Keith would be able to buy a house. I think in fairness, that's probably our original intention, which is just get enough to, um, to create a, a business model inside a web application that would then, you know, see us see us 
for the rest of our lives in terms of a little bit of a of a of equity. Um, and then we just discovered, as every entrepreneur does, that you just hit a million brick walls. And 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 at that stage, there's a lot of people very reasonably go, "That's not for me. I don't want to keep doing that." It was something that I wanted to do. I don't know, just at the point where you decide that you um, you know you want to stop reading a book because you're just not enjoying it anymore. You know, it's fine. You don't have to keep going. But I think there was something that we persisted in doing that. And that was 20 years ago. And then fast forward 10 years after, we started a, an app called When Is Good, uh, .net. And um, sorry, that's just my WhatsApp. Um, hang on, I've just got to close this down. Um, and so, yes, fast forward 10 years. Sorry about that. Are you able to edit that out? I'm not sure. So. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, fast forward 10 years. Uh, we're still at it, still still building web applications. I'm working in politics. And really what happened was, and it was a very rational choice um, at the end of the day, what really happened was my decision, I was in my mid-30s, was I going to, how was I going to spend my time, actually? That would be the the transferable question that anybody would want to ask themselves. Did I want to spend my time working in government, working in politics and um, uh, trying to make a difference at a national level or government level or public policy level, whatever I thought I was doing? Or do you want to make a difference in building up a company? And to me at the time, it just felt more interesting building You Can Book Me, which at the time was probably doing, um, it was probably only doing about, Fifty thousand pounds a year, you know, like very little. But fifty thousand pounds a year is a is a is a full time salary for many people. You know that is, and this was ten, twelve years ago. So, right, um, it was enough to it was enough to demonstrate that we had customer growth, customer traction, and um, and product market fit because we were growing so fast uh, as part of the tool. So I had a choice about we've we've been doing this for a long time. We've been trying building and launching products uh, for a long time. We've now got You Can Book Me that is settled into a very identifiable pattern. You know, the same kind of business and customer is finding our tool organically, signing up and giving us money without us having to do anything. Um, all we need to do is keep building the tool and do the customer service and, uh, and away we go. And then I think that then what happens is you start, you, you build momentum and it takes on a life of its own because I've always, I've often said that um, it's not one single thing that you do. Um, you have to build a product which involves software and engineering and development and structure and DevOps and design and UI and UX and hosting and the whole full stack of it. So that's one thing. You have to build a business, which is how are you going to make money from that thing that you've just built? Are people going to give you money for it? And is that money going to be enough to pay for the cost it's cost you to build it? And then you have to build a company around it because as soon as you start employing people, as soon as you create people infrastructure, so hiring and um, roles and responsibilities and salaries and benefits and holidays um, and targets and OKRs, you know, that and corporately your entity, um, we have two entities and you can book me one in the UK and one in one in America, but we have a very uh, broad range of solutions for how we hire people. So how to hire people and build up a company and all of the other logistics and operations and accountancy. I mean, I'm listing them all now like it sounds like it's really hard work, but it, but you don't just suddenly get dropped into it and suddenly have to do it all. You build it up slowly over time. So after a while, you realize that 
the company that you build, as you said, you know, we're around $5 million ARR now. We've got a very ambitious um, plan to get to double double our, our revenue in the next couple of years, um, which I think we've got, we can do. But so so fast forward and you're running a multi-million pound software company. And to be honest, it kind of surprises me as well, because I think I've only just feel like I've only just left my old career behind and I'm now just getting into my stride. Right. Oh, I loved how, uh, you know, this is the most down to earth and I think the most realistic uh, idea behind building a product. We wanted to buy a house. I mean, uh, I I totally uh, always appreciate, you know, when, when it's like we want to change the world, we wanted to, to satisfy our customers. We wanted to um, solve a problem. There was a very good reasons but i think mostly it's just something way easier usually it's just yeah it's it's something you want to do to yeah to do something with your life to change it to to buy a house uh so that's perfect thank you for for being so honest about it uh so let's uh yeah let's dig into this whole operational thing that that you're you're not being thrown into right but it piles up right and even if uh, it's just slowly uh, getting there. Now you have to deal with all of it, right? So at some point you do have all the things that you just said uh, in front of you to deal with. Mm -hmm. So uh, at what point uh, did you think that maybe, you know, it was too much and maybe we need to scale. Maybe it's not just the two of us anymore. Um, we need somebody to take over to delegate and, and, and scale? Um, so I can answer that question quite specifically. You can book me. The first version was launched in 2011. And by the end of that year, we had already taken on a part-time freelance customer support person. And also in the summer of 2012, we had a developer working alongside Keith on it so we'd already borrowed money and started to use some of the uh, proceeds of our customer sales and spend it on so we basically everything that we made from the company we put back into paying for investment in the company which meant um, employing some contractors one of whom still works for us uh, one way or another so it's amazing in terms of a journey that she's gone on with us um, I, I was at the, the job that you alluded to before. That was my full-time job that I did between 2011 and 2012. So I was in full-time work for that year whilst um, You Can Book Me was getting up to a point where I think the expression is ramen profitability. So as I said, we were doing two or $3,000 a month. Um, it was enough to pay off the overdraft that we'd used to help fund um, some of the additional development work that we wanted. And um, and we just scraped by. And then for another couple of years after that, I still did. I did. Um, I gave up my full time job a year, exactly a year after. So in October 2012 was my first year as being CEO of You Can Book Me. And at that point, we already had a company because we'd been putting consultancy work through the company. Um, we changed the name of the company. We started to hire people and formalize some of that relationship in 2013. And then we basically, that was 10 years ago, and we've never looked back since then. 
Okay. And uh, was was there a point when when you decided that you're not going to go after investors' money, that you are going to bootstrap? Was that from the very beginning or was it at the point when you realized you are growing enough to not go there? No, we've never felt that we're growing enough and doing well enough to not consider funding because I think it should always be a question. I, I think that the fact is that funding is just simply a um it's a tool that you need to always consider as a possibility um it, it doesn't matter about whether you're bootstrapping or funding or borrowing or doing whatever what matters is do you, what do you need the money for and what would you spend it on and what would you get for your money so in some ways we didn't we did consider funding we had meetings with angels we went and had a couple of meetings with some vcs uh god knows what they thought of us but um they certainly didn't try to overwhelm us with cash it's not like we had to, we've never turned down a, you know, a formalized funding offer. We never got that far. Um, but one of the reasons why we always hesitated is because we just didn't quite know what we would do with the money. And I, I can totally see now in hindsight, you know, how you see people calling themselves serial entrepreneurs or third, you know, second time founder or, um, you know, they exit from one and then they immediately start a new business. It's because it's so addictive. Once you know and understand how to solve the problems and what you're doing it becomes addictive because it's a, a matter of pain and regret when I look back at 2011 2012 how little I knew how I mean the incredible community that we have now um, even LinkedIn you know the kind the amount of wisdom that you can access pretty quickly nowadays because of the absolute explosion of content marketing and events and online means that you know I was hungry for talking to somebody who who could have recognized what we were doing at the time, given us some good advice. So it could have gone a very different way. But basically, we were on our own, not really understanding the context of the thing that we had in front of us. So as a result, we moved a lot more slowly, commercially, and from a business perspective than we probably could have done had we had funding and support and advice. But it was because I just thought, well, I'd rather make a million pounds slowly than spend a million pounds fast and wasted so we just we did just choose to take the harder rockier path um, essentially allowing ourselves more room to make a mistake because if we did make a mistake it would just be me and Keith's assets that would be under pressure if we borrowed money then it would have to be me working to pay it back or you know likewise Keith would have had to go into contracting or we'd have had to exit the tool at a loss or whatever. I mean, but, but I didn't want to be in a situation where I was having to face people I'd taken money from that I couldn't pay back. So I think that's probably quite a, you know, probably quite a, um, a uh, fairly prosaic position that I take about money and borrowing, which I don't think is necessarily good business advice. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. 
companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, once you're taking the money, you're no longer just working for your product and for your customers. Yeah. You're also working for the investors. So yeah. obviously that, that changes the whole setup in the company and, and the, the, the mindset of the founder, right? So what is um, the mindset of a bootstrapping founder, right? Like what? what well, I think you... actually, yeah, I think, I think you can answer this question using research. So there's a book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Noah Wasserman, I think. Um, and he talks about the difference between a desire to be king or to be rich. And I believe it's based on a Harvard Business Review. And if I've got any of these details uh, incorrect, then somebody has to uh, has to correct us. But um, the the point that the research that they did was they looked at, um, let's say I have no idea, like 100 companies, publicly listed companies. And they looked at the root um, of those companies and based on uh, based on ownership, uh, control, um, and so on, and and how shared was the ownership, and what the conclusion was that was evidenced by by the review was that companies that share ownership, that take on investment, that have external boards and accountability, um, tend to essentially go on to be bigger, more successful, and richer companies. Whereas companies where the founder has decided to either be bootstrapped or keep control or um, uh, yes, or, or not share power in, in, internal to their company. They have a lot of control, this is true, but they don't, they don't tend to make as, as wealthy companies, as companies that, that go on the track that we'd all recognize. So that's the choice. Do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? And I think it's very personal. I, think, I don't think that um, you, know, you can have a 1% one, a 1 slice of, a, of, of 100 billion pounds, you know, or you can have 100% of, 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 of a billion, I think. You know, like you you choose what you want to do in your life it's your day it's your it's you wake up in the morning and decide how how much you want to spend your day you know doing your own ideas or carrying out somebody else's ideas or trying to make other people carry out your ideas or you know like it's all about persuasion and influence with other people and how you want to work and i guess i guess at the time for probably personal reasons as well as as well as reasons to do with my own um my own strengths and weaknesses I, I'm essentially a control I'm, I hope I like to think of myself as being a benevolent control freak so I very you know I want I do want to control things okay all right so <laughs> what what kind of rules and what kind of a I don't know like control panel have you had over this year set up for yourself and for the company uh that you know that helped you bootstrap it to a uh, 5 million error is it well very easy don't spend any money if you can help it because <laughs> you don't have any um so yeah I, there's like i think that this is it there is a there's a point there where i did a i did a, a talk in um boston in business and software um years ago like five years ago where i did a presentation on on various things to do with dealing with people and the thing that I said was um, that hiring the wrong people will have the biggest impact 
on your success or failure of your company. And because it, it's not just some kind of recruitment process or offering somebody a job and hoping that they work for you. It is the ecosystem that it's that it sits on top of. And the ecosystem is about culture, processes, rituals, um, values um, and ambition, vision and mission and that kind of thing. So essentially, if you hire the wrong person, and this is what I said in the con- in the conference, um, the worst thing that can happen to your company is that the wrong people will spend your money on the wrong things. And so that's it. The wrong people will spend your money on the wrong things. Or when I say my money, I actually mean customer money. So if you're bootstrapped, the only money you've got comes from customers. And to see people that you perhaps shouldn't have hired spend that money on something that is not going to put value back into your company um, and and continue on the path to profit um, is kind of the most painful, painful experience. And I met somebody just last year who had been to see, who'd seen that conference talk and he had, I didn't, hadn't met him, but five years later, he remembered who I was. He said, we quote you all the time. We say it's not your, it's not their money. It's not their money. Um, and it's a very, very uh, brutal way of putting it. But he loved it because he just, it summed up the issue here that if you're bootstrapping your company, ultimately you have to, you have to take care of money and you have to protect it and you have to value it for, for what it can do for you. So you, it, you can use money to buy services or labor or um, save you time or fix a problem but you can also spend an enormous amount of it that won't do any of those things and that's what you have to you have to um, look at so we now I mean even now we are in a very small office here in 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 Bedford in the UK you know I don't like spending money on things that don't seem to me to give put any value back into the customer experience of the product or, or the experience of the people working in the company. So we do, now we're a lot more generous, but at the beginning, you know, I was, I was very frugal with everything we said and did. And if we could get away with not doing it, we didn't do it. And that's, that's it. It's to, you can't judge your own spending habits in your company by what other people are doing when they have millions of pounds and you've got nothing. So you just have to, you have to remodel your, if you like, your sort of sense of, um, purpose it's like living next to a next door neighbor that lives in a mansion and you've got your plot of land so you've just got to make use of what you've got make make do and mend would be the expression right so this is a this is also like a, a difference in mindset when when you've got all the vc money in the world then you know you you can just spend it and uh, if you need uh, another tool then uh, it's okay to buy it and uh, if another employee doesn't like it but uh, likes another one with pretty much the same setup then well let's buy this too uh so yeah completely understand it uh but what would be the things that you would never um be frugal about like what would you uh, good question so yeah yeah yeah, good question frugal i'm always going to be frugal so it's like it's like (laughs) in comparison you know right um We've always prioritized the employee experience as far as we possibly can. So even when we were only, you know, one or two million or probably, I don't know, one and a half million ARR, but a a team that was still, we'd only just made profit. We'd only just broken even. We took the company, we we started to fly the company around um, in terms of bringing them over from America and Europe into the UK to Bedford or... We, the first time I think it was in 2017, we went to Lisbon 
And then after that, we've gone to some really nice places. So we've been to Costa Rica and the Dominican Republic. We've been to the south of Spain two or three times. Um, and actually this summer, in a couple of months' time, we're going to the south of France. And it's obviously, as we've grown as a team, it's got more and more expensive. So, you know, suddenly the first time you do it, it costs £10,000 and you think that's fine. And then it's a bit of an intake of breath when you realise you've just spent £50,000, £60,000 on something. And that's a hell of a lot of money. It's a, an enormous amount of money. So why would we do that? Why don't we just keep everybody behind, you know, their co-working spaces? And the reason why is because the value to the company and the employee experience is so amazing. When everybody's together in a, in a, in a week where I just believe that um, I've been on enough company dinners where everybody's paying for their own dinner. Like, like the worst thing is when you have to go to the Christmas dinner with your colleagues and then you have to pay for your own meal. Like I've, I've been there. Um, and I think that once you've asked your employees to come on something which the company is paying for, you should just go for it. Pay for the drinks, get them, you know, uh, working together on trips, doing nice things. And then what happens is that by the end of that week, on, come Monday morning when they're all back at work, they're all back in there because we're a remote company. So this is obviously fun and exciting for a lot of people because they don't get a chance to hang out. Um, your productivity, energy, connections, you know, it all just boosts on Monday. We were so lucky before COVID that we had just been to the, the Dominican Republic. So we had just been to the Caribbean. We'd had one of these kind of weeks. And then we got back and literally a month later, we locked down. And then we didn't see anybody for two years. And you really could see the difference over two years of people not getting together um, because people are, are social. They want to hang out with each other. So that's something I've never stinted on um in time putting the opportunity of time and pleasure back into the employee's experience of working for you which is not doesn't have a monetary value but it has a huge cultural value and it's really appreciated and so whenever we can afford to we've done it oh i mean in the end of the day it does have monetary value because people stay with you people are happy mm -hmm. and instead of like rehiring new people that were not happy and exactly. and teaching them again uh, yeah so obviously that's amazing um but um you yeah you just said that you're fully remote and again something super important right now like uh people do not want to to go back to the offices no matter how um uh, how scared they were at first to go home and work from home. Uh, so how do you how did you move? Or maybe if you offered this kind of uh, remote setup from the very beginning, how did you structure it? And why did you decide that this is the setup that you want to work with? Um, so it was very much related to um, saving money. Because um, I'm not quite sure how we would have done it if we did, if we had pursued an office in 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 Bedford or London, we would have had to pay, you know, at the time unimaginable rates of pay for people who are software developers working in London. I mean, they're still very high, um, but for us at the time, there was no way we could afford to pay for a full time developer. Um, we could afford to pay for contractors and a sort of a mix and match. But at the time, I mean, now it's so much more of a flexible labor market. But 10 years ago, um, you know, maybe also because of my inexperience, I didn't know how we were going to be able to find somebody 
where we are in Bedford, because anybody who's a software developer who lives in Bedford will be working for a company in London. So you're dealing with London, you know, one of the most expensive capital cities in the world. And we're a tiny little software company, you know, without any funding. So if we had then sort of taken on a million pounds of funding, well, then it's like, okay, great. Now we can go ahead and we can hire, you know, a a team and and get going, uh, which I guess would have been the option for us. But instead, what we did was we looked around for people who we could afford. And so, of course, you know, the labor, I think it's changed again a little bit now, but um, rates of pay for software developers in Spain and Portugal and obviously Eastern Europe are much more comparable and within our ability, it was just simply within our ability um, to afford incredible engineers, but at the same time offer a kind of a path in our company that gave them an enormous amount of experience working up um, uh, you know, learning how to grow the tool that we've grown with the number of people. So we had basically a very exciting tool to work on, very fast moving and growing and loads of customers international, mostly in America in terms of scheduling. So we had all of the kind of thrill and glamour of an international global SaaS tool, but we had the kind of working conditions and labour and, and employment protection and values of the European employment model so we set up in Spain and we hired directly people in Spain so everybody in Spain works everybody in most of the country the company remotely works for us directly so they, that means that they've got a you can book me pay slip they have you can book me social security employment taxes and benefits and protection so that was really important um, to people who wanted to have a, a feeling that they had an employer that wasn't just based on a on a contract, um, on a freelance contract, for example. So that's how we built it up. And so because of that, it just uh, required us to be remote because we weren't hiring anybody that was planning on moving to Bedford anytime soon. And we didn't want them to. So it suited it suited our natural, um, low cost, simple solution to stuff. So having an office and feeling like everybody needs to crowd into the office. We did have an office, not this one, but a different one. Um, that did get full quite quickly with people that we had hired on a freelance basis to work for us in Bedford. Um, but in terms of the first couple of serious remote employees, as well as Spain and Portugal, we also then hired people in America because we had needed to have customer success, customer support people um, interacting with most of our users that are in America. So we just never looked back, really. And then and then what you do, what you do is you start to evaluate everything about how you want to work with people, communicate, document policies and procedures, processes, and you just have to find tools and solutions that um, are set up for your your arrangement. So the HR software that we use, we've used for years now, and I love it still, Bamboo HR. The reason why we use it is because they, it's a very specific thing. They handle multi-currency fields for people so if you've got people earning in dollars euros and sterling you can put different and i'm sure there's lots of other differentiators now but at the time when i was looking at uk-based hr software because it's obviously predicated on uk employment law it would just assume that you're in one time zone and one currency which is no good so i was like no I can't, this doesn't work so you have to find the tools that actually speak your language in terms of what, what you want from a remote perspective. Once you do that, you just get very used to it and it starts to become a very normal thing. 
Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's perfect. And so it's, it's right there in your DNA. Uh, so I want to, to go back a little bit into like the whole, uh, being frugal thing and, uh, being very careful about the money and where you spend it. Uh, well, obviously you don't want to spend, uh, money just like that, but there are things that, that you have to spend it for, right? Um, so, um, what, what are the rules, um, in the company that you use, uh, to determine whether or not you need to spend money on a certain um, thing? Well, it's, I mean, so here's a good one. Laptops. Laptops are often considered to be a kind of a status object and it's very, very you know, important to um, people because they, they have to work on a laptop. And um, the first laptops that we bought for people 10 years ago were, were Google Chromebooks. I mean, they were like 200 quid each and they were just Google Chrome Chromebooks. And everybody was really pleased that they had something to work on because at the point that I realized I needed to provide um, devices to people, it's like, okay, well, you just need to do, you know, cloud customer support tickets. A Google Chrome is completely fine. Um, and we don't have to spend the rest of the money. But then as you progress, you need to buy laptops for people. And my rules still are, like I'm on a MacBook Air. I think anybody in the company that's not a developer doesn't or designer doesn't need high processing power can just be on a MacBook Air. Whereas if you're a developer, you can be on a MacBook Pro or, or a higher spec machine. Um, so I don't believe in spending an extra thousand pounds on a laptop that's not necessary. Um, and it doesn't matter to me that somebody might think of themselves as wanting to have the most expensive Mac spec that they can get for the status. They're probably not the right people for our company in the first place. Um, so when laptops come back or people have left and we've got their laptops, you know, it might be a new person starts and we'll say, well, you can use, you know, this laptop's two months old or something. And so you can use it. You know, there's like, I don't, I think that you've got to be real be reason I mean but then equally every three years one of our developers will say oh my laptop's you know cracked out and we go okay fine we'll buy a new one like we haven't got any problem about buying them it's just that it's I'm not going to use them as a status symbol they are a tool and they have to and they if you don't need something more um than the what the minimum cost then we're just going to get the minimum cost uh, um I think that's probably I mean that's a very um simple rule but it's an example and I think that's the way we think about a lot of stuff which is what's the purpose what's the point how does it feed back to how we're making money and how we're growing and um and and because uh, what we haven't talked about of course is the corollary to bootstrapping is that you then end up creating profit so I've probably been a lot more generous in the last five years since we've been profitable than I was in the first five years when we were making a loss. It makes a big difference. So if you have a big profit margin, you've got loads of money. So then you can afford to be, I, I certainly still wasn't buying expensive laptops at that point, but you know, but, but you can say, look, we've got money here that we can invest in something. Um, we, you know, we're not scraping around now. I don't, I don't believe in, um, or I mean, you know, plane travel. Uh, I'd be flying economy budget economy whatever backpacking 10 years ago and now obviously when I fly I tend to fly quite nice nice flights and daytime or you know I know it sounds ridiculous but for European travel um 
you know, I say to people, we're all going speedy boarding. You know, speedy boarding becomes this kind of the business travel of the European budget flyer. Uh, because I recognize that when people are traveling around for us, you know, I want them to get on and off planes and get on with their life because they're working for us. So, so the value of paying the extra amount of money for the tickets is worth it for the company and we can afford it. Whereas seven, eight years ago, there's no way, no way. I would just I would just put them on the cheapest plane. Okay. So it's it's yeah, it's about um still it's about um sorry, what was the word? The necessity, like the just the Yeah, it's the value uh, it's the value. Value. You know, if you're it's the right. value. So if you because so look, this is it, and this is this is sort of basic um kind of domestic economics almost. If you've got money in your bank account and you decide to spend in any kind of business, the money that's in your bank account, if you decide to spend it on something, what you're really saying is, I am either spending this to protect the rest of the money in the bank account. Or it's because I'm expecting for more than what I've just spent to come back. So in marketing, if I'm spending a pound, I expect two pounds to come back, at least 10 pounds to come back usually. So what you can't just do is run an economy in your business where you're spending a lot of money and you don't see any reason, you don't see any any um, value back into why you're spending it. You're either spending it to protect your assets, of what you've got, or you're spending it to grow your assets. Um, it's not money isn't some kind of hobby or, you know, or um, fun thing to do. Money is a tool like everything else. And we do it in our company. We do it for those two reasons. So um, if we were to take on funding, and I certainly wouldn't rule it out. But if we were to take on funding, it would be because we decided that we want to spend more money than we have on growing our asset. Okay, not not the fancy stuff. Precisely. <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, let's talk a bit about about you as a leader, as a CEO, and uh, um, that was your still is right um, your first CEO job, right? So, yes. what was the uh, the main lesson that you had to learn as the CEO, and how did you grow uh, well y- yourself and and the company? with with this structure? I think there's things that I'm naturally very good at, which make me a good CEO, which I didn't learn, but I but I certainly developed like being strategic um, and organizing things. Um, I think the thing that I've had to learn is people and working with people, because as I said before, half your job is about influencing and persuading people to do things that you want them to do. And in like in life, it's, it is a combination of hard diplomacy and soft diplomacy, you know, so soft diplomacy would be company culture, company benefits and incentives, working on an interesting problem. Um, you know, being given lots of room to, to, to progress as a, as a person. Um, and then, hard diplomacy would be this is what we're paying you this is what we expect these are what your benefits are this is the deal that you're getting and then this is the deal if if it doesn't turn out the way we want it to be um and so i've always had a kind of a combination of both of the co- the, the company is run to a fairly tight set of standards in terms of policies and procedures you know we're not an anarchic company we're not flat management or um a pick and 
pick and choose what what you want to do. We try to keep the company as a very is a quite a, a sort of it's it's quite a conservative um, company structure in that sense. Like we have managers, we have policies and procedures, um, we have a nine to five. I'm not trying to be a break the mold of um, of what people perceive the office to be like. Uh, but on the other hand, we invest in our soft diplomacy around our company culture, our values and um, and ownership over the work that people do. It's very important because that's what uh, high performing problem solvers want to do. They want to have they want to be able to see that the work that they do goes into production. They don't want to just they're not academics. They don't want to sit around thinking about the perfect things to do. They want to actually see them be done. And, um, you know. There's some exceptional examples of, of of that inside our company in the sense that we have some amazing people who work for us who do that. And you can see, oh, that's all great. Uh, but there's also some unfortunate pain, painful failures, which, you know, if you ask me what is the most painful thing about being a CEO of a company like you can book me, it's when we don't get it right with people, when we let people down. And that can happen, you know, last week, it can happen 10 years ago. It doesn't mean that you don't just get better and better and better and then you never make mistakes. You're always going to make some form of people, person mistake and it's always going to impact somebody in a way that you wish it hadn't. And that's, that's for me, learning how to still maximise what I'm trying to achieve and minimise the pain associated with it because people are the hardest thing and the right. best thing. They're the best thing as well. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so um, are you a hangs-on CEO or is it after like 10 years you are on this more strategic observing inspiring kind of role uh are you trying to to make yourself um useless in a way in the company yeah so um very good question um I think everybody might this is so this there's lots of different opinions about this so this is just uh my my take on this which is the spectrum between being a big picture thinker and inspirer and talker and then being an absolute hands-on operator where you're delivering and you're, you're you're all over the details i i fall some some way halfway between the two and i personally think that any leader and i'm not just talking about a ceo but any c-level leader inside a company that's in charge of a department or a whole company group of people should have the capacity to understand the detail of what it is that they're asking other people to do if that's required so in my time you know i have learned about american corporate law or accountancy requirements for r&d or workplace pensions or um uh, i was looking today at you know understanding payment processing fees and understanding MasterCard and Visa, you know, um, platform charges versus pay, you know, I mean, you can, you can get disappeared to rabbit holes all the time if you come from an operator background. And to an extent I do. Um, but if you don't, if you're not able to lift your head and see the bigger picture strategically or to know where you're going, then, um, you're not going to be able to kind of make a progression to being a strategic leader. So I think that the answer is I did do an awful lot of direct delivery operation um, in, in, in a lot of years. And I, I will still, I'm still the fallback 
um, on stuff. But laterally, in the last couple of years, I've hired a full-time HR, full-time finance manager, a full-time compliance manager, and I also have a COO, a chief operations officer. So I've actually now expanded my operations team to do all those jobs. So I was actually making people laugh at lunchtime today because I was saying how when I was at the conference at New York last week, it was my colleague, Jonathan, who paid for everything with his card. You know, I mean, this is like, this is just, I love this. Like, I'm just, I'm not the one that has to pay for the lunches anymore. Um, So I like that. I like not having to do that. Um, But I think being strategic means that you're always living in a little bit in the world of what are we, where are we trying to get to? And I'm trying to do a lot more bridging between where I think we need to get to and what we're aiming to do over the next year and, and, and two years and what that in, involves um, with a certain amount of reflection on my journey, which I kind of want to put to bed. So I'm like, I know about how to do that. I've worked on that. I did all of the details. This is what I've learned. These are the things that I think um, we need to retain in how I've done it. And strategically, this is these. I'm going to assume we are doing it like that in order for us to get 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 further on. So you have to be you have to learn how to be responsive to new details, to new um, new circumstances. So you can't just get fixed in what you're really good at doing and used to doing because then you're not going to be able to change. So um, I think that so I, so basically yes, I think you always there was somebody else with this um, about boots or shoes some form of footwear that you always have to be wearing boots that are slightly too big for you I mean I'm not saying I'm too big for my boots uh the boots are too big for me is what I'm saying so if you're always inhabiting a space that always feels a little bit bigger than you would than you've felt your competence takes you up to this point you always know where you're trying to expand into and then you get to a point where there's a tension between your ability to get everybody to expand into the space versus delivering what we're having to do today. So it's a today, tomorrow kind of balance. And I'm definitely moving more in the tomorrow kind of world in my role than the today world, because we've done an awful lot of of hiring recently in the last couple of years of people who can basically deliver today. Okay, awesome. I think that's a, that's a brilliant roadmap. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. So just a couple more questions. And uh, the one, the usual question that I always ask is, what's your biggest win and biggest value as a CEO or as a company? I, I think that our biggest win is our commercial success, which I'm very proud of. We have over 20,000 customers. You can book me as one of the top three scheduling tools in the industry used by millions of people. We have over a million and a half bookings every month on the tool. Um, It's widely known, not just in Europe, but mostly in North America. It's used by almost every university and school in America. And thousands and thousands of small businesses rely on you can book me. And we're expanding and we're growing. So that relationship with customers has been something that I've never done before in my previous careers. And I, 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 I treasure it. You know, it's a kind of, it's a deep, deep form of satisfaction to know that you've built a successful business with a relationship with that many customers. Um, that you're, you know, you serve, we serve those customers. It's their money that we spend and um, we want to do right by them and keep investing in the tool to make it better. So that's what we do. So it's investment in that relationship and the quality that has um, seen us through so many years 
And I think that that would be what I would be most proud of. I mean, I, I obviously am proud of the tool and the and the solution and the kind of things that we're doing. We we're, we're doing at the moment to 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 bring it up to speed in terms of some of the stuff. I think we can adapt to what people need in scheduling. So I think I'm proud of the solution. But I think that the business around the solution that's built that relationship up with all those customers is something is is it was was our job. That was my job to do that. So I'm glad we did it. Biggest failure. Um, it's usually the harder one. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's hard because there's a, this, the trick that Peldy from Balsamic always has is to say that he doesn't think of himself as failing ever because every every lesson, every, you know, everything that turned out not to be how he expected, he just turns into a lesson that he learns from. So then by definition, you can't fail. Um, and I think also, you know, you don't want to catastrophize failure in what you're doing as a business because nobody ever said you is you're, you're that um you're just going to um go forward make every decision correctly so basically failure is inherently a part of running a business so you can't run a business without making without failures um so therefore in the common terminology it's not a failure because it's that you couldn't avoid it it's just You either, you know, you have profit and loss. There's always a loss to a profit. You know, you can't have one without the other. Um, I think though, I would go back to what I said before, which is I think that we probably lost too much ground and too much money in the early years because of our inexperience and we hired the wrong people. And um, and essentially by hiring some of the wrong people early on, they ended up doing quite a lot of damage to our early prospects, um, which I regret, which is, it feels like a failure. Um, it's something that systemically we've obviously looked at again and everything I talk about hiring and culture since then has basically been informed by by um, by that experience. But I think that's probably the, the feel, you know, if it, if it was a sort of, oh God, if I could have just not done that, it would probably would have been that period. One thing I would say, was a mistake that we made, which we're still paying for now, uh, that is definitely avoidable, um, is um, don't build your own um, bespoke billing and subscription software solution. <laughs> Get something off the shelf. You can't, it's just impossible. We've got, we've got one in-house. It wasn't our intention to have one in-house. It was a long, long story about why we have one in-house. But It, we really need to move away from that and move to a system where we're we're dealing with a third party um software solution i think generally speaking as a rule of thumb either go for no code or integrated or automated solutions for things uh, but avoid trying to build bespoke software for every problem you're trying to solve inside the company and try to go for really really good solutions like if you're scheduling a scheduling solution <laughs> but you know don't try to build everything that we hear it all the time with you can book me when people are looking at it and they go oh we i could probably do that myself and yeah you probably could um build a scheduling tool yourself but then suddenly you have to start maintaining a scheduling tool inside your company and that's the, for us that was what we did with billing and subscription software uh, and we have to maintain it and it kind of saves us money because we're not paying them three or four percent you know on our revenue fee But it, I can see now longer term scalable. Scalable. We need to. We need to switch out of that. Absolutely. I'll now get. I'm going to get loads of of demos now from salespeople saying, Ooh, "Try our, <laughs> try our tool." 
Yes, absolutely. But uh, this is something that I bring from from my previous uh, company that I worked for. Uh, we would always say, uh, and it, it, it's it's a platform where you can just like you said integrate all the best uh, systems and, and tools out there. So there are uh, there is Slack, there is you can book me, there is Stripe, yeah. there is like you don't have to reinvent the the wheel. You just need a platform that allows you to. Uh, plug in all the best tools around your solution, whatever you're building. Uh, so 100% agree. If if you can get by, um, just plugging in something that's already uh, there. Yeah, just just do it. Uh, but awesome. I just have one last question, and um, also just because you know everyone's absolutely crazy about the the latest news. Uh, so crypto is, I don't know, making a comeback, not making a comeback. AI is there. Also, no one knows what, what to do with it. Uh, financial institutions crashing. So a ton of. End of the world. Right. Is your question, is it the end of the world? <laughs> no, not really. But, um, which one do you think, what is the, the, the trend or, or a piece of news that, is going to inevitably have the biggest uh, oh, effect. That's easy. That's easy. Yeah. That's that's AI. That's Chat Chat GPT. I mean, that is what okay. we're seeing right now is the equivalent of the printing press. I think it's even it's going to be it'll have more impact than the printing press. This is it is th this this technology and how it changes our interaction with knowledge and learning and literacy and communication is it is as impactful as the printing press. And what is fascinating about it is the exponential change that you can see as a result of this technology being launched. You know, the number of, it's, it's, it's the technology that's launching a thousand software startups and solutions, but it also means that people, you know, who are born um, in the last 10 years or so, who will then be experiencing the world that has been written by AI as opposed to being written by humans um, will experience a very, very different world um, because, because it's, it's got a, an epistemological basis to it, which is how do we know things? Where does knowledge come from? Um, so previously we were in this very uh, mechanical transactional relationship with knowledge exists on the internet. We go in there and a company like Google for the price of showing us an advert will serve that information to us in the form of search um, results that is totally different to knowledge being um, assembled through you know that kind of billion billion form of pattern recognition that AI does and presenting back to us our own information but 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 presented in a way that actually changes the way we think about that information and I think that that is the key philosophical point there, which is that the access to the information in the same as the printing press vastly um, and exponentially increases the amount of knowledge and learning that's available to the human being. So in developing countries in Southern Africa or in Asia, or South America, where they have, they're not really, you know, even out of the gate in terms of a lot of um, access that we have in countries like Britain in terms of Wi-Fi and broadband and devices and phones and all the rest of it. They've got phones. They will be now using AI to access knowledge and knowledge and power and um, 
and functionality, stuff that they can do that gives them, you know, a hundred years worth of development suddenly today, instantly. It's it's now here. So um, the way print, the printing press suddenly meant that the Bible and every other book could be in people's houses and everybody could start reading and you're, you're not relying on monks writing it out. It's bad for the monks, but it's great for everybody else. It could be about, for example, medical changes. So medical procedures and um, understanding and accessing public health strategies will change because of chat GPT. Um, clinical diagnosis, um, everything to do with understanding the causes of chronic diseases. Um, these are these are the kind of things that you could then apply to public policy level um, that will give people an exponential gain in benefiting than they would have done had they been waiting in line with, for, you know, an, an older fashioned way of, of delivering that kind of healthcare. Um, but it's also about changing the nature of knowledge itself. So knowledge basically stops being They've, what, they, what they've done is ChatGPT has made knowledge dynamic. It changes according to the type of query and um, building block that you have. So it isn't about all our knowledge now lives in these distinct and mutually exclusive units like a book or a web page. Knowledge is now being um, merged and brought together by this third party intervention, the AI bot, and it is presenting information in a dynamic, analytical way. And that's going to change what people learn. Do you think that maybe um, it still needs to change a little before before we can we can use it in healthcare? And because and I, I'm I'm a very uh, big supporter. Like I use it pretty much every day, honestly. Uh, I think for content creators, it's an amazing tool. Absolutely, like seriously. Um, but even I, and I don't use it for anything serious, let alone, um, I don't know, feeding it the symptoms of um, my son's uh, illness or, or anything. But um, it does give you very weird um, results sometimes. It it does give you a very mm, distorted, very I don't know um, how to say. Like there are a lot of holes in in, in the like the knowledge that that it has. Yeah, yeah, and and, no. and and but by its very nature, though, those are the holes that maybe we detect now. But exponentially, in a year or two years' time, those holes will be fixed. I I, I see that as being just a symptom of the you know essentially a um uh a natural byproduct of how this thing's worked worked in the first place it's not like we've built a perfect product we've rolled it out and we now have a few qa bugs that you know that we have to fix it the, the very nature of it means it's going to get better and better over time um but i just think i mean i think that perhaps underlying some of your concern might be that it is it might just uh you, you know it might just be this sort of bubble or or a kind of a, like something that might just be too extreme in one sense and not helpful in another sense and it might be that we're all praying for climate change and just you know put an end to the world and humans altogether because essentially it's either between ai or climate change and one of them is going to kill us uh so we just have to decide what it is i mean you know you could you, i don't have a particularly positive 
positive view on the future of the human race generally. So we might as well go down in some kind of artificially intelligenced, you know, created flames. Right. So feed them, feed them enough empathy so they kill us softly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We go down in like we're awash with too many blog posts. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. That's uh, that's been amazing. I mean. <laughs> uh, Great, um, great to learn how, how and again, this, the question of AI uh, is raised a lot during the podcast. So um, I do have a lot of opinions uh, to, to deal with. So, but that one, uh, yours is very interesting. I think I've never, um, yeah, I have to go back there. I have to use chat GPT right now. <laughs> Ask to feed in the transcript of this thing into right. chat gpt and then uh, then we'll live in a kind of a real meta um you know apocalyptic uh world where you feed in my words into chat uh chat beats pt um <laughs> I, 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 why did they have such a stupid name would be my only criticism of it like can we get a snappier snappier name yeah. um feed in all my words ask it what it thinks it suddenly knows the possibility of destroying all known <laughs> knowledge and whatever else then starts to learn how to do it then basically achieves the goal right and it will finally eat itself that's the spirit <laughs> okay <laughs> well thank you so much Bridget I mean everything uh that you said today was uh was absolutely amazing thanks for sharing your experience and your thoughts about the trends and the, the future of humanity uh but <laughs> I think all good conversations end on the future of humanity. Right. I don't. I think if you haven't if you haven't covered it at least once every day, you know, then uh, you're not you're not paying attention. Yeah, you're not living right. Uh, mm. I, I well, thank already... you very much for inviting me on. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Bridget. I mean, it's been uh, an honor, and um, all the best with uh, you can book me. Thank you, and and hello to everybody watching this and thank you very much for being such a supportive SAS community <laughs> thank you and take care bye 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 that was yet another awesome conversation on SAS Unbound we're always looking for new guests to share their experiences we mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders and if you're one reach out to me directly at anna at sas.group or find me on LinkedIn if you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form and expect a response in under 24 hours.